You don't have to be a genius to come to the conclusion that the world is a little bit broken, okay? That's putting it nicely. We're a lot a bit broken. If you have a cell phone or cable and have ever been just scanning through the news, you've seen how much damage we're capable of doing to each other. There are three different words the Bible uses to describe the brokenness of the human condition. None of these words were original religious words, but they've become that over the course of time. Uh, the first word is sin. We talked about that last week. It comes from the Hebrew word kata, which simply means to miss the mark. For instance, if you were at a pub playing darts and you missed the dartboard completely, your friends would laugh and say that you katad. You completely missed. You failed. This week, we're looking at the word transgression. Another word that we don't use very often outside of religious settings. And next week, we're looking at the word iniquity. And nobody uses that word, I don't think, in any context anymore. But all three of these words were used intentionally by the authors of the scriptures to emphasize something different about the brokenness of the human condition. Now, all of us have been hurt by somebody. Raise your hand if anybody's ever hurt you. All right, raise your other hand if you have hurt anybody else. All right, raise your other hand if the person next to you is lying because they didn't raise their hand either time. Right, like <laughs> you don't have to get too far into life before you realize that not everybody is acting in, in your best interest. So why are we like this? And what does a relationship with God have to do with helping us become different in the way that we relate to other people. Transgression comes from the Hebrew word pesha and the Greek word paroptima. And they both mean the same things. Sometimes they're translated as the word rebellion or rebel. And in older English translations, you might find the word trespass. But all of these words mean to violate the trust of another person. Specifically, Pesha and Paraptima describes the betrayal of relationship. And because there are many different types of relationships, there are many different ways in which we can Pesha with someone. In 2 Kings, the Bible says that when uh, King Ahab had died, that Moab, in English it says, rebelled against Israel. But the original script would have said they peshed with Israel. Because you break trust with someone, you don't break trust against someone. So if someone broke into your house, let's say, and stole your flat screen TV, or, uh, oh, I was, was going to say, I think the thing that my wife would miss, miss most is uh, actually our, our mixer. I forget the name of it. It's white, it looks ceramic, it's got the stainless steel bowl. Somebody is thinking of the name of it. I can't think of it. Anyway, if somebody broke in and stole that from you, you would say that they had stolen it, right? Like they, they, were, they were a thief. But if it was your neighbor who had broken in and stolen the mixer, then they had peshed uh, with you. They had broken trust. Like a, a stranger isn't necessarily somebody who's going to pesha against you. That person is going to kata. That person is going to miss the mark. They're going to fail in the way that they treat you as the stranger. But somebody who has a relationship with you, somebody that you should expect 
a certain amount of consideration from, some common courtesy or some human decency, is the type of person who's going to pesha with you. That's going to be somebody that you would pesha with also. Jacob is accused by his father-in-law Laban of stealing his household idols, and he and he chases them down. Jacob, by the way, is the is uh, uh, the grandson of Abraham. He's living with his father-in-law, and now it's time for him to spread out on his own. And he leaves in the middle of the night. And his dad, his father-in-law, notices when he wakes up this morning that not only had Jacob left with his wives, but Jacob had also stolen his idols. So he's furious, and he chases after him, and he catches up to him. And Jacob uh, asks this. He says, uh, I have served you for, I think it was like 20 years, right? I have served you for 20 years. Like, I don't, what is my Pesha? Like, you should be able to trust me. Like, what? What is the way in which I have broken our relationship? And Jacob hadn't stolen the, he hadn't peshed. Like the weird irony was is that his wife, Laban's daughter, was the one who had peshed with her father, had broken trust with her dad, and it wasn't Jacob at all. But Matthew chapter uh, 6, verse 14, uh, Jesus uses the Greek word for this, and that's paroptima. And here's what Jesus said. If you forgive those who paroptima against you or pesha with you, uh, if we're using the Hebrew word, uh, who break trust with you. If you forgive those who break trust with you, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, then your father will not forgive you your paraptima, your pesha, the way that you have broken trust with him. And I think that's a difficult verse because I feel like I'm, I'm not as upset when a total stranger sins against me. But when somebody that I love and trust sins against me, breaks trust with me, like, if you're a complete stranger to me and you lie, like I'm never really offended when a, a salesperson on the phone lies to me. I almost expect it. I don't even know if that's Pesha. That's just rottenness. But if I'm talking to you on the phone and we're friends and you lie to me, that's, that's Pesha. And it, it's a wound that cuts deeper. And because it, feels personal, it's the hardest thing to get over. That's what it is. And I'm betting that as I'm talking about this, you can think of one or two people that you care about or used to care about who have peshed with you. Now think of that person when Jesus says this. If you forgive those who have peshed against you or with you, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you your Pesha, or in Greek, paroptima, means the same thing. Honestly, the Bible from the very beginning to the end is one long story of God and the people that he created to live in relationship with him, Pesha-ing, with him. That's the whole Bible. Is the whole Bible is filled with God and the people who pesha with him. The prophets in the entire Hebrew scriptures are constantly sent 
to tell Israel the ways in which they have peshed with God. Uh, I'm thinking of, of Amos who says uh, that they had uh, they they were in a pursuit to protect their borders and to increase their wealth. They were capturing people and selling them for the price of a sandal. They were slaughtering people in cold blood. They were lying to them and using faulty weights in their measurement to to steal. And in their idolatry, the language that Amos uses to describe what they've done is that they had peshed with God is what they had done. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin, now remember, when I'm using the word sin in the verses today, we're talking about the word pesha in Hebrew or paraptima in English. Both of them mean the same thing. It's to break trust. When Adam broke his relationship with God, sin entered into the world because Adam's breaking of his trust with God brought death, so death spread to everyone because everyone breaks people's trust and rebels against God. So according to the Bible, Adam was the first person to break trust with God and also his wife. And then like a birth defect becomes genetic, this disease of Pesha, of sinning against, not just failing to hit the target or to miss the mark, it's the way that we, it's the way that we hurt people. It says that this sin spread to everyone who is a descendant of Adam. But you're not a victim in this because Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says that you yourself have peshed. You've done this. So not only am I born with pesha already pre-downloaded, right in the operating system of my heart, but on my own free will, I keep clicking the Pesha button in my interactions with other people. And I keep behaving poorly with them is what I do. That verse goes on to say, like it says, Adam is the one that brought Pesha into the world. He broke his relationship with God. He broke his relationship with, with his wife. And because of that sin, and because of sin, death, and then you yourself have contributed to this. So we were born with it, and then we've added to it. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 5 says this, but there's a great difference between Adam's pesha and God's greatest gift, gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's pesha. For Adam's pesha led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though you and I are guilty of many pesha, peshas. Verse 17, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death, over Pesha and death, through this one man, Jesus Christ. 
Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Jesus undoes the damage to our relationship with God by dying as the permanent sacrifice for our Pesha. What I love is that God's response to Pesha, to Paraptama, is to become the trustworthy person to keep the promises that we never were and never could. Jesus does this to show us a new way to be human, trustworthy and faithful. This is why we can be confident when we read the scriptures, when we spend time in prayer, that God will never pesha with me. And because I know that God, as demonstrated in the life of Jesus, does not pesha even when I do, that God does not break trust with me even when I've broken trust with him, I look at my life differently than a lot of other people. When bad things have happened in our life in the past, I know from what the scripture says that God is sovereign and he sees everything that's going to happen to me in my life before it ever happens. Doesn't mean that he's chosen everybody's choice for them who's ever peshed against me. He just knew that you were gonna pesha with me before you chose to pesha with me. And he wrote that into the story of my life. And then he twists those things. That's what it says. That he uses all of those things for his glory and my good. And because I know that God does not break trust with me, no matter what you do to me or with me, I know God somehow has the ability to work this into my story for his glory and my good. It's God's faithfulness. Like he's the anti-Pesha is what he is. And because of Jesus, God responds to our Pesha with grace and mercy. I think the prodigal son is a perfect picture of this. Um, there's a man that has, and this is in Luke chapter 15. There's a man who has two sons. And uh, the younger son comes to the dad and says, essentially, I wish you were dead and I want all of my inheritance now. And the surprising thing is that the father, the father does it. Now, the son has committed this gigantic pesha. Like this is like the biggest transgression a son can make against the father. is to say, I wish you were dead and I want you to give me your stuff now. The I, if the father ever, this is the, this is the, if the father ever had a reason to cut his son off, this is the moment. I don't even think we would accuse him of Pesha if he did. Because we would say that the son broke trust with his father. And for the father to say no would not be a breach of trust. We would call that a rational and just response. But what the dad does in the story that Jesus is telling is he actually liquidates a third of his estate and he gives it to his son who goes into a far country and wastes all of that money. And when he's come to the end of his father's wealth and he has nothing left, no friends, no resources, the Bible says he's essentially living in the gutter, 
He says to himself, I am no longer worthy to be called my father's son. Why? Because his Pesha was too great. So he said, but maybe he'll give me a job as an entry-level worker. And he goes back to the house. Um, and that's where he pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 20 to 24. So he returned home to his father. What do you think the dad should do after the son had peshed with him so greatly? I mean, truthfully, the son's pesha with his father was a pesha with the entire family. He had broken trust with everyone. Like anyone who had anything to do with his upbringing in the home, like his, if he had a nanny, then his nanny, if he had, he had an older brother with his brother, with his mom, with his father, like he'd, he'd broken trust with everyone. Like his name is dirt. And he has the gall to come back home. Here's what it says. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, the father ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. That's crazy. We know from the law of Moses that the punishment for the son when he comes back would actually be that he would take him outside the city gates and stone to death with rocks because he had broken the fifth commandment, which is not to dishonor your father and mother. And the punishment for that was to be stoned to death. So I've, I've heard, read one commentary that actually said that the reason why his father embraced him and wrapped his arms around him would be to protect his son from anybody in the crowd who would begin throwing stones at him. That's, that's above and beyond. Like I would, I think I would want the person to apologize. Like this when the Bible talks about forgiving people who've peshed with you, Luke 15 is the picture of that. Like all he does is just see his son and he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. That's what he does. Verse. Two. By the way, he doesn't say that what his son did was okay. It clearly was not. And what his son had been doing didn't matter because it all everything matters. Forgiveness meant I'm not going to pasha with you in return. You can break trust with me, but I'm going to keep the bridge built. You can light it on your end. Out to the best of my ability, I'm gonna the bridge between you and me. If you try to burn that thing up, they burn your bridges, right? I'm going to try to put it out even on your side. I'm going to do my best to make sure that the bridge is intact on my side. That's what it means. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Do you think that was the response the son was expecting from his father? Obviously, obviously not. If you read the verses before the verses I read with you, you see that the son says, and I mentioned this, I am no longer worried to be called his son. Maybe he'll give me 
an entry-level job, and he actually practices a speech that's a little bit, I don't want to say it's groveling in nature. It's just matter of fact. Like, he's not expecting anything. He's just hoping that his dad will see him and treat him as though he were a stranger. That was the best he could hope for, but it's nothing like what he got from his dad. How do you think this affected the son's relationship with his father moving forward? In consideration of the way he had peshed with his family and the way his family had reconciled with him, what kind of a man do you think he was moving forward? Do you think that he was probably going to become a better man as a result of this? Or do you think he would have just continued to treat his father poorly and his family and continue Pesha to uh, continue to Pesha uh, with, with them? Like I, 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 the answer is a little bit obvious and it, I'm trying not to ask leading questions, but it is a little bit. I mean, the truth is, holy cow, if, if you knew that you had sinned against somebody this badly and they did not give you what you deserved, it would change you. Not only would you never treat that person the same way ever again, you'd definitely try never to do it to them again, but I think it would affect the way that you would treat other people. And there's a pattern, I think, in the scriptures and in my own life of Pesha, repentance, forgiveness, and some moderate life change. It'd be like if I was going to ask you to guess the number that I'm thinking of between one and a thousand. Like what number would you say, right? And so you, you guess your number. And then I said, higher or lower? So let's say I said, higher than that. You'd guess another number and I would say, lower. And then, like every time you reached out to me and I responded with some type of indication of where you ought to go, then the next time you reach out to me, it's going to be a little bit closer to where you ought to be. Does that make sense? Like you're going to eventually get to the place where you hone in right on the number that you're supposed to be on. And in my own relationship with God, the more I've come back to God and asked for forgiveness for the things that I've done that I knew in my heart had broken trust with God. And the times in my life where I have hurt other people and I've reached out to them and I've asked for their forgiveness and they offered it to me, it truthfully did not make me more likely to hurt them or more likely to sin against him in that way. It made me, I think it made me less likely. Like gratitude, gratitude affects the way you think, not just about the person you're grateful to. It also changes the way you think about what you did that necessitated their mercy in the first place. There's a story in the Bible. I think it's in Luke chapter 7. Jesus has been invited to a religious person's house. And um, everybody who's everybody, anybody is, is at this party. 
And uh, it's a big thing because Jesus is already famous at this point. Uh, he's traveling around the nation of Israel preaching repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And different people had different expectations of what that meant. Jesus clarified that after his resurrection. But anyway, everybody wanted some of Jesus. So when this guy invites Jesus over, he goes. And then um, he's, a, he's a guest at this party. It's another man's house. But there's a woman who's invited, excuse me, not invited to come to this party because she's, a, she's known to be a prostitute in the community. And there's an indication that at some point she had, she'd sat under Jesus's teaching and she recognized that God's forgiveness for Pesha was available to her also. So she comes into this party, she's not welcome. When she walks in, the conversation stops and it gets really awkward. Either when she takes this expensive bottle of perfume and pours it on Jesus's feet, then on his head, and she starts wiping his feet with her hair and, and she anoints him. Jesus says that she had anointed him for his death. So he knew that there was more significance, whether she knew it or not. But for her, this bottle of perfume, which would have, this was her dowry, essentially. It was worth a year's wages. She emptied the most viable thing that she had out for Jesus out of gratitude for the way in which he had forgiven her for her Pesha. And the, the religious host of the party watches this happening with disgust. And he thinks to himself, if this man, Jesus, really were a prophet, then he would know what type of woman was touching him. And he would recoil in disgust the way he should. Like this whole thing is completely inappropriate. And this is how Jesus responds. He responds with a story about a man who owes a little bit of money and a man who owes a lot of bit of money. And both of them are forgiven their debt. And he says, which one of them do you think is going to be the most grateful and show the most, most love for the person that forgave them. And he said, well, obviously the person who owed the most money would be most grateful and therefore show the most love to the person that forgave them. And then Jesus says this in Luke chapter seven, verse 47. He says, I tell you, her sins, and you're right, they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only a little bit of love. What he's saying to this guy is that in comparison, you think of yourself as a better person. And in doing this, he's letting him know. And in that way, you have peshed again, not just with her, but also with God and the pride and arrogance in your heart. But this woman who recognizes how much pesha she has committed, how much she has betrayed the trust of others, how much she has katad against God is unbelievably grateful. And because she is so grateful, she responds with more love. I think the connection to that story and everything else that we've been talking about is that your ability to forgive other people is in direct proportion to the amount of sin you feel God has forgiven you for. And I would go one step farther to say, that your inability to forgive other people for hurting you would indicate to you and me 
how much self-awareness we lack. Maybe we forget how often we pesha with others and break trust with God. Because if we had an accurate grasp of how much of our sin has been forgiven by God and the amount of suffering he took on our behalf, I think I, think I would be more grateful. And having been forgiven so much, I think I would be more inclined to forgive others for so much less, right? This causes me to look at my own sin differently. Um, and that's why Jesus said that God will not forgive us our Pesha if we do not forgive the Pesha that others have against us. How have you peshed with God? That's what I want you to ask yourself. In what ways have you broken the trust of God? In what ways have you katad against God? Have you missed the mark? Have you broken? How many times have you asked God to forgive you for sinning against him and promised him you would never do it again? And then you did it again. Like how many times have we done that? I think the older it's like compounding interest in our retirement accounts. It starts off a little bit, but it just keeps like, you know, by the end of our lives, we've, you know, it's $100 a month, $100 a month, $100 a month. It becomes this great thing. I think over the course of our life, like every little sin, we've got some little rationalization and excuse for why we did what we did. But when we look back at all of the deposits we made into that sin bank account, I think the compounding interest of that would would break our hearts. It would definitely make your heart heavy. And when then you recognize that 100% of that can be forgiven, it makes us do what the son does to the father. It makes us fall into his arms with gratitude. And we say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then when he calls us his son anyway, it changes everything. So I think the first question I would ask is whether or not you would call yourself a son or a daughter of God. Not because you're human. You bear the image of God because you're human. I'm asking you if you've ever repented of your kata, of your pesha, and placed your faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that was offered on your behalf to pay off your Pesha, and your Kata, so that you could be reconciled to God. Because if you believe that Jesus has done that for you, then all you need to do is ask him to become a part of your life and to forgive you. That's it. Jesus, I believe that. Take away my sin, right? I am no longer, pray the prayer of the prodigal son. I am no longer, I am not worthy of being your son again, but if you would let me Come into your home, I would be forever grateful. And then you'll find that God goes, not only can you come into my home, but I'm going to call you my son and my daughter. And so when you call on God to do that and he adopts you as his son or daughter, John chapter one says, to as many as believed him and received him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, in Jesus' name. Then I think we need to ask, who have we pashad with? Who have I offended?
And on what basis will I refuse to seek reconciliation with them? When God has initiated reconciliation with us, like on what basis do I say that I'm allowed to hold others to a higher standard than what God holds me? And those who've sought reconciliation with me, but I've left in the doghouse in some misguided attempt to punish for what they've done to Almighty us. I'm wondering if we can't find it in our hearts to forgive them for their Pesha in light of the amount of Pesha we've been forgiven. Like, what would you think of that prodigal son if he were to be the kind of person who held grudges from then on? You and I would both say that that guy of all people doesn't have the right to hold grudges. And maybe the same thing is said, could be said about us. I'm gonna give you a chance to fix that. If you would bow your head with me, we'll talk to God about it. God, I love you with all of my heart. And I am thankful that there's no Pesha I've ever committed with you. There's no way in which I've broken trust with you that you have uh, put me in the doghouse. I'm thankful that you love me, that like the father in the story of the prodigal son, you are the faithful father. Maybe the story should be called the faithful father because the extravagance wasn't on the part of the son. It was on the part of the dad. And in that same way, God, no matter how much Pesha we bring with us to the table, you bring even more grace. So I just want to say thank you. Maybe your prayer is for God to take away your sin. Jesus, I know what you did on my behalf, and I need that. I am broken on the inside of my heart, and I know that I am not worthy to be called a child of God. But if you would allow me to come into your spiritual home and to become a part of your spiritual family, God, I would be grateful. Can you make that your prayer? God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my transgression. And make me yours. To as many as received him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To those who believe in his son, they are the ones who receive the adoption as sons and daughters of God, the scripture says. If you're a follower of Jesus, who do you have broken relationship with? Who do you have Pesha with? And what are you going to do about it this week? Dear God, make us grateful because gratitude is the best, the single best motivator for life change. This is how our relationship with you cleans up and fixes the brokenness we have with others. Let us be light in dark places, at work or school or in our home. Help us to be the center of hope. Help us to be the bridge builders. I mean, you even said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. God, let us be that in every relationship, especially the broken ones. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say it together, amen.